For generations, the American Museum of Natural History has been wowing visitors with its diverse exhibits. From its vast collection of dinosaur fossils to its hall of ocean life, complete with a blue whale model that hangs from the ceiling. But how did the museum become the major hub of education, research, and innovation we know and love today? Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Our guest today is Colin Davey. He's the author of a new book titled The American Museum of Natural History and How It Got That Way. Colin, thanks so much for taking the time. Oh, my pleasure. So what inspired you to write this history of the American Museum of Natural History? Well, I got into writing the book um, like getting wet, walking in the dew, you know. You don't think you're getting wet at first, and all of a sudden you realize you are. And what I mean by that is I didn't originally intend to write the book. I was just researching. Frankly, I was nostalgic for the planetarium that I used to go to as a child, and I had taken up an interest in New York City history and uh, architecture and in general, and that led me to think about the planetarium that I used to grow up going to as a child. So I figured uh, I was just web surfing, and I would Google around and learn a little bit about it just casually, like I do on many topics every day. But it turned out to be very difficult to find any information on it, largely because the the search results only turned up information about the new incarnation of the planetarium, the Rose Center. So I just dug in and found different ways of making search terms and learned a little bit more. And eventually... I made contact with someone who used to be a senior lecturer there, and that really got things rolling along. And we were exchanging emails, like maybe 100 emails in several weeks, period. And I got to the point where I realized there is not that much information about this. I I could write a book. And here it is. (laughs) Do I really want to write a book? And the gradual process until it happened. Yeah. So what surprised you most about that planetarium that you spent so much time in as a kid? One thing is the role of Robert Moses in it. So we were talking about what made me want to write this book. One of the things that kind of tipped me over into wanting to do it was when I realized that this could add to the known information about Robert Moses because so much has been written about him, Mm -hmm. but there's this aspect of it. And Robert Moses... I'm sure a lot of New Yorkers know him, but he's the one who designed and built Jones Beach and the United Nations and Lincoln Center and the Triborough Bridge and many roads and pools and parks and housing developments and notorious for some negative effects he had as well. But a controversial person who was never elected to official office Yet he was one of the most powerful men in New York for decades as mayors and governors came and went. And also the planetarium had a really interesting role in igniting our space program. There was a period in time where the scientists had figured out how to, most of the hard problems about space travel, getting into orbit and to the moon and Mars, say, by the late 1940s. But they didn't really pick up steam, getting the public to believe in it, until there was a symposium at the Hayden Planetarium and uh, on space travel. 
it was initiated by Willie Lay, a German rocket scientist, and some reporters went, and it led to Collier's Magazine writing a series of articles about the possibility of man getting into space. Also involved was Werner von Braun, the German rocket scientist, who had frankly worked for the Nazi rocket program and was recruited by the Americans and led our Apollo program and other programs. And that series of articles in Collars Magazine, and this was when people got their news from these color picture magazines, Mm -hmm. got the public interested in the program, and that also got people interested in the Hayden Planetarium. So you see the feedback loop is the Hayden Planetarium sponsored the symposium, then the symposium led to these popular articles, and the articles led to more people being interested in the planetarium, and them changing their focus to not just astronomy and stars and planets, but also space travel and making space travel seem real in the imaginations of the public. So for those not familiar with Hayden, who's the Hayden in Hayden Planetarium? That is Charles Hayden, and he's an investor. He got involved kind of late in the project. First of all, uh, the, the museum president, Henry Fairfield Osborne, who was president from 1908 to 1933, he started trying to get an astronomy program going at the museum in 1908 and failed to get the funding for it. But they had a general plan for it, putting it in the current location on the museum campus. By the time he had left, the next museum president came in, and it was the first 100 days of the Roosevelt administration in the Depression, and Roosevelt was getting his new deal going. And Robert Moses was moving to focusing on New York, whereas previously he had worked on Long Island and Jones Beach. And he did the lobbying to get the funding for the planetarium in 1933. But then it turned out that the New Deal program that was funding the planetarium, the Reconstruction Finance Corporation, was reluctant to fund foreign-built products, which the main event of the planetarium, the Zeiss projector that projected the star shows on the dome, was a German invention. So uh, they needed to find uh, someone who could fund those products. And that's where Charles Hayden came in. So he bought the projector and some other things, uh, which led Robert Moses to say, Charlie, uh, never in the history of philanthropy has someone bought immortality so cheaply. Hmm. Because... A lot of the other planetariums, the donors had funded the whole thing and not just the instrument. But since then, the Hayden Planetarium has donated hundreds of millions to the museum and to the planetarium. So uh, I'm not sure that Robert Moses' comment was fair, but uh, just uh, adds a little color to the story. You mentioned in the book that the American Museum of Natural History was the brainchild of Albert S. Bickmore. Tell us more about Albert S. Bickmore and his thought process behind this museum. Yeah. Well, he had a background working on a museum in Massachusetts under Louis Agassiz, and he had the idea that our greatest city, 
at the time was shaping up to New York. That should be the location of a natural history museum. He had to put his idea on hold for a few years, but then he eventually came to New York and lobbied the more prominent, wealthy, influential New Yorkers into supporting his idea. So he got the ball rolling and then took a a major interest in uh, the educational programs at the museum once it was founded. He never became the president. He took the title of superintendent, but he he ran the educational museum. The museum today, of course, is across the street from Central Park, but it actually started in the park. Am I correct? Yes. And it was put together in conjunction with the park from the beginning. In fact, even before... Albert Bickmore came into the picture as just the early thoughts of having a Central Park in New York were forming. They had already knew that they wanted to include museums and educational institutions in it. And a major person in this story is an individual of the name Andrew Haswell Green, who he was a lawyer and after a stint as the president of the New York City Board of Education, became uh, the controller of the project for building Central Park. So Albert Bickmore and his group of museum founders, that included, by the way, President Teddy Roosevelt's father, petitioned the park, and it was Andrew Green who returned their letter saying that he would, wouldn't like to work with them on the project. And there's a lot of interesting history there, because just as this was happening, the notorious William Boss Tweed had uh, seized power in New York City and state. He had his cronies as the governor and the mayor of New York City and the uh, eventually took over control of the Central Park project. And Andrew Haswell Green and Samuel Tilden formed the coup that brought down the notorious Tweed Ring. And this is all at the exact same time that they're working with the museum to get it going. But the original building was in the Arsenal Building, which was in Central Park, actually existed as an armory before Central Park existed. But even before they opened there, they knew they needed a permanent location, and they started working on finding one. There are a number of candidates, including where the New York Public Library now is and where the Metropolitan Museum of Art now is. And there was a period where the actual location of the museum was slotted for a zoo. And then there was a period where both the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Natural History Museum were being considered to share that space. But at the same time that they were organizing the museum project, Andrew Haswell Green and Samuel Tilden took down the Tweed regime shortly after Tweed was arrested and spent the rest of his life in and out of jail. And Andrew Haswell Green took over as the controller of New York and had to undo the mess that the Tweed regime, the debt and so on, that the Tweed regime had inflicted. 
Now, Andrew Haswell Green is an important hero of this story because he's not very well known, even among people who are fairly knowledgeable about New York City history. But look at what we've already discussed. He was a controller of Central Park. Mm -hmm. He was a founder of the museum. He also is considered a founder of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the uh, New York City library system, the Bronx Zoo. And it was his idea, and he lobbied for decades until it happened, to unite the boroughs of Manhattan, Bronx, Staten Island, Brooklyn, and Queens into New York City as we know it. So people who are aware of him know him as the father of New York City. Huh. So one aim of this book, and this is just still all within the first chapter, though, yeah. is, is to make him more known historically. The museum that we know today is built on a site that was known at the time as Manhattan Square, right? And it was one building at first. Now it's many buildings. Am I correct? Yes. And it was originally planned to grow. The idea is that once they picked the site, the architects came up with a master plan whereby there would be a square of buildings along 77th Avenue, Central Park West, Columbus Avenue, and 81st Street. So that's square. And then a cross connecting the centers of them. Uh, so that was the master plan. And so this allowed the museum to be built in dozens of modules that could be built one at a time. And then they picked the first one to build. And that's the one where currently the Northwest Indian Hall is on the first floor. And on the fourth floor they have the uh, uh, vertebrate fossil exhibit, which connects to the dinosaur exhibits. So that module was the first one built. So in a sense, the history of the museum's building is the history of the attempt to build all the buildings in that master plan as the master plan gradually changed so that instead of building sections that they wanted in that plan, they started building in some of the negative spaces, and we could see that the, the current project for the Gilder Center, which they're just starting to build now, how that fits into the master plan. The first building opened in 1877. Was there a lot of fanfare around that opening? Uh, around the opening, yes. Uh, it was, first of all, there was um, a cornerstone laying by President Ulysses S. Grant, and then the grand opening was presided over by President Rutherford B. Hayes. Uh, unfortunately, after the fanfare of the opening, though, the attendance was disappointingly low, and that was due to the fact that it was way, way uptown. There was no buildings near it. The Central Park had just been built, but most of the population lived below 59th Street, and the museum's up on 77th Street. Yeah, that's a pretty long way to travel if you want to spend the day at the museum back then, right? Yeah. Eventually, they built in the train line, the Columbus Avenue train line, but even that had disappointing attendance results. Of course, today, the American Museum of Natural History is very well known for its dinosaurs. Can you tell us a little bit about how the dinosaurs found their way into the museum? Sure. Uh, originally, they didn't have a dinosaur department although or a paleontology department. 
though they did have some fossils. And at the time, paleontology was a fairly new field. The term dinosaur was originally coined in 1842. And then paleontologists started digging up more and more bones. Two of the most famous and prolific ones, Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Marsh, discovered hundreds of extinct species and found thousands of fossils. But they developed a rivalry which eventually led to the headline, Scientists Wage Bitter Warfare, caused the field of paleontology to develop mass public awareness. So the museum president at the time, uh, Morris K. Jessup, he decided to try to get into the dinosaur game, and he hired Henry Fairfield Osborne, who we spoke about earlier, whose main field of science was paleontology. And the museum started on expeditions out west to try to find their own dinosaurs, and they ended up purchasing also Edward Cope's entire collection. So the, the first dinosaur was put on display in 1905. That was an Apatosaurus, which at the time, and until relatively recently, as was referred to as the Brontosaurus. And that was found by a museum scientist in 1898, and it was unveiled in 1905. Now, at the time this is happening, the museum consists primarily of just the 77th Street section, the big fortress-like section on 77th Street. There were with a couple of extra buildings added on. So then they acquired a few more dinosaurs and the famous T-Rex that they have, for example. Mm -hmm. So there was a time before they were able to do any more building where just one of those corner sections, just the east corner section on 77th Street on the fourth floor, had all their dinosaurs packed into that one little section. So we had the, the Brontosaurus, the Allosaurus, two Anotitans, which are a duck-billed dinosaur, and the Tyrannosaurus rex, all in that one little corner. I understand the man who discovered T-Rex actually worked for the museum. Is that right? Yeah, the discoverer of the T-Rex, uh, the first T-Rex ever found, was Barnum Brown. He was a young fossil hunter at the time, and he worked for the museum till he was 90 on and off and was one of the world's most prolific fossil hunters. He was a colorful character. Another name that we haven't talked about yet is Carl Akeley. What did he have to do with the creation of the Akeley African Hall at the museum? Well, the Akeley Hall was his brainchild. He originally joined the museum because he wanted to make a big elephant group. And this was in 1908, just as Henry Fairfield Osborne was taking over as president. And he originally wanted it to be called the Theodore Roosevelt Hall. Uh, when, when he went to Africa to hunt elephants for the elephant group, he was joined by the former President Roosevelt, and so in the elephant group that is at the center of the African Hall right now has eight elephants, 
One of them was shot by the President Roosevelt, one by President Roosevelt's son, and one by Carl Akeley. So he, by the way, by this time had already had experience. He had an iconic elephant group in the Field Museum at Chicago, and he had mounted P.T. Barnum's famous elephant, Jumbo, when it was hit by a train. So while he was in Africa, still on the same expedition where he had gone hunting with Teddy Roosevelt, he was attacked by an elephant and only managed to, he, he almost died and, and had to convalesce. He only managed to save himself by grabbing onto the elephant's tusks like a parallel bars hmm. and then was smashed into the ground and the elephant then struck him with his trunk. And while he was convalescing, he had this vision for the African hall that he spent the rest of his life working on. Wow, and, that's and, quite the story. Yeah, and in fact, one of one of the iconic groups of that hall is the gorilla group and he actually at the site of that gorilla group is the location in africa where akeley died working on the group and is buried today hmm. what's the connection to the explorer robert perry in the museum well the museum's Anagito meteorite, which is the largest meteorite in any museum, was brought to the museum by Robert Perry. And this was part of Perry's expedition, or actually series of expeditions, series of epic, grueling expeditions to reach the North Pole. On one of these attempts, when he was exploring Greenland, he ended up being stranded. He brought a team of people, including his wife, who gave birth on this expedition, and sort of failed. So when it came time to return everyone home, he decided to stay with a few men, and his wife and most of the team returned home. But they didn't have a plan to bring Perry home. He was going to wander around Greenland for a year and try to make progress, and the idea was that his wife would just show up a year later with a boat to bring them home, although they didn't know how they were going to make that happen. <laughs> and if she didn't show up, then they would just sledge down to, like, southern Greenland and hook up with some Danish settlement and find a way to get home. So his wife is going to geographic societies and to the Navy and to anyone who will listen, including scientists. Maybe scientists will pay to be part of this rescue expedition and then they could do exploration while they're at it. And in that process, she ended up getting hold of the museum's president, Morris Jessup. And Jessup was so moved, he said, you, you keep fundraising, but don't worry. If you don't get it, the money you need, I will pay for it. The most important thing is that I want your husband to come home safely. So he ended up footing most of the bill, and they made the rescue expedition. In the meantime, Perry and his team had just the most harrowing time during that year and didn't really advance the cause as much as they wanted. They ended up, after trekking over the Greenland ice cap for months, managing to make it back to base, like just starving and literally starving. So the rescue was accomplished by Jessup, and 
he went back, Perry went back to Greenland many times before in 1909. Because keep in mind, this is all in 1893 to 1895 mm-hmm. time frame when, when this rescue mission takes place. And he doesn't make it to the pole till 1909. So and would you say that Jessup is the most influential president the museum has ever had? In terms of the building, which is what this book focuses on, I mean, I mean he had the, the, the presidents with the longest reigns and who had the most influence on the building are Mars K. Jessup, Henry Fairfield Osborne, and the current president, Ellen Futter. The, as far as the length of their presidency and the fact that these are the people who got major portions of it built, we could say that it's those three. But Jessup was the third, Henry Fairfield Osborne was the fourth, and then there were a number of in-between. Before them, there were just two short-lived presidencies that sort of just helped get the ball rolling. Then the third and fourth, Jessup and Osborne got the bulk of the museum built, and now under the current president, we had the Rose Center built and the major Gilder Center project, which is now under construction. The cover of your book features the museum's famous blue whale model. Is there a fun fact you can share about that blue whale with us? Well, originally they had a whale in a mammal's exhibit, a large whale. But this more realistic and larger whale was added to this hall in 1969. But when that hall was originally designed, it was designed for the purpose of having sort of ocean-related exhibits, and they called it the Whale Hall. And it had whale skeletons and a few whale models, but the one that we see there today was added in 1969. The museum today is open daily, except on Thanksgiving and Christmas. Was that always the case? No, one of the major controversies in the early history of the museum was that it was not open on Sundays because the museum's trustees were strict Sabbatarians, so it was against their religion to open on Sundays. And this was around the time, and this was under the Jessup era, and Jessup was himself a strict Sabbatarian who was opposed to opening the museum on Sundays. So it raged on for 10 years with many New York Times articles about the controversy about whether the museum should open on Sundays. And this goes for both the Museum of Natural History and its sister museum across the park, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And a lot of the building that they were trying to get done, that 77th Avenue section, they had resistance to getting funding for that building because many of the politicians were in favor of opening on Sundays, largely because for a large portion of the population, Sunday was their only day off. So they couldn't visit, you know, the city's museum ever because it wasn't open on their day off. So immigrant groups and labor groups and various other progressive groups applied pressure and the politicians applied pressure. And they finally gave in and started opening on Sundays, and this led to some of the funding being released to do some of the building. But Jessup ultimately said that 
he was wrong to oppose the Sunday opening and that he was delighted in seeing people coming in on Sundays who didn't have the chance and that he just flat out admitted that he, he was wrong in his in opposing it. Do you have any particular thoughts on what the strategy should be to experience the museum? Where to start, where to go? You know, it can take a lot of time to get through the museum, but have you ever thought about this is the best way to experience this museum, these buildings? Hmm. No, I frankly do not. I I have a different strategy every time, and depending on what you're interested in and how many times you've been there, you might take a different approach. But I do like to walk around and look at the buildings and think about their history and look at the architectural differences and the reasons they are that way uh, as one part of it Mm -hmm. because these sections were built from the 1870s through the year 2000, and each section was built in the architecture style that was prominent of its time. So it's a hodgepodge of different architectures. And then once you're inside, of course, you should certainly see the dinosaurs and the planetarium. And then just look at what's available. Think about what you're interested in and curious about. Uh, Everyone might have their own best way to go through the museum. The book is the American Museum of Natural History and how it got that way. Colin Davey, thank you so much for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Maddie Bristow. And thank you so much for listening.